Hello, everyone. My name is Adam Williams, and you are listening to another episode of Retail Redeveloped. Now we're gonna get we're gonna get pretty in the weeds on the on the experience economy and what that means to retailers and people in the retail industry alike. And I am joined by. I think you would have to consider the foremost expert on this subject, one Joe Pine. Now, who the heck is Joe Pine? He's an internationally acclaimed author, speaker, management advisor to Fortune 500 companies and entrepreneurial startups. He's a co-founder of Strategic Horizons, LLP, a thinking studio dedicated to helping businesses conceive and design new ways of adding value to their economic offerings. He's written multiple books, which we'll get into today. I follow his his articles on the Harvard Business Review. He is an absolute wealth of knowledge. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I appreciate that, Adam. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, we, we've uh, been trying to put this together for a while. I appreciate you being so flexible with your schedule and, and, and blocking off some time for us. But before we get started and really nerd out on on all things retail and all things experiential, would you just take a second and explain to the listeners kind of who you are how you came to sit in the seat that you're in now and, and really the why behind the, the years and, and, and decades now of research that, you, that you've poured yourself into. Just explain to people kind of who you are and, and, and how you got here. Well, I'll mention briefly, I'm a, I'm a technologist. I have a degree in applied mathematics and a master's in the management of technology from, from MIT. And I actually started out at IBM um, in my early days. And, and one of the things I've learned there in working with customers was that every customer was unique. And that led to me thinking about uh, mass customization and getting that into our plans and strategies at IBM. And, um, and that, that was actually what I did at MIT is I studied the whole year in mass customization, did my thesis on mass customization. I turned it into my first book, and that came out actually in 1993, if you can believe it, that long ago. Uh, and that led to discovering the experience economy, where I recognized that um, mass customizing a good automatically turns into a service. And what does it turn a service into? Well, if you design a service that is so appropriate for a particular person, exactly the service that they need at this moment in time, then you can't help but make them go, wow, and turn into an experience. You know, that was the genesis of the experience economy now over 25 years ago. Uh, and, uh, and then we've written about it. Uh, my partner, Jim Gilmore, and I uh, came out with the book, The Experience Economy. Well, the HBR article you mentioned um, um, on Welcome to the Experience Economy actually came out in 1998. Uh, the Experience Economy book came out in 1999. We updated it in 2011. And we uh, just re-released it in hardcover, you know, so the third edition with a new preview that really talks about how it's, we're not just shifting into experience economy anymore. We are in an uh, experience economy. So I always say, you know, then I've got, you know, several other books on authenticity on digital technology and so forth. And so I say what I, what I eventually figured out is that my purpose in life is to figure out what's going on in the world of business and then develop frameworks that first describe what's happening and then prescribe what companies can do about it. You know, so we did that first with mass customization, then the experience economy, and then these other uh, topics as well. So let's let's start. Let's go back a little bit because I, I want to spend a lot of time on the experience economy because, I mean, you, you've got to feel a little bit like Nostradamus uh, calling this stuff a while back, <laughs> and and I want to talk a little bit about 
you know, what you saw coming, what you got right, maybe a couple of things you got wrong or undervalued or overvalued. I, I want to spend some time on those topics, but let's, let's break it down a little bit for, you know, a, just a, a normal, you know, real estate nerd that didn't go to MIT for applied mathematics and, 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 ta- and that would be me. Why, why don't you break down what is mass customization on a, on a, on a granular level? Like what, what, why should people care about that term? Let's start there. Sure. Well, yeah. So mass customization basis, you know, very simple definition, efficiently serving customers uniquely. In other words, giving every customer exactly what they want, but doing it at a price they're willing to pay. So you, you meet the, the two imperatives of being both low-cost, high-volume, efficient, and doing things individually for each customer. And so mass customization, you know, the company's been doing it for 40 or 50 years, um, but it, too, is coming into its own as more and more do it, particularly the rise of digitization, because anything you can digitize, you can customize. And you think the rise of the smartphone that allows us to uh, interact with not just millions, but billions of customers around the world. And that how everybody takes a smartphone that may be mass produced out of the factory. But once you put your own apps on there, your own contacts, your own data, your own videos, um, your music, it becomes unremittingly unique. So we're, we're, we're sort of revolving the world around ourselves because of the digitization of the smartphone, because of the access to everything over the internet, that we also then want that in, in, in all our other interactions with other companies. And so it's becoming a very important thing to do. So everything from Chipotle to iPhones. Right, exactly. Exactly. So, so would you consider mass customization more of a marketing technique or manufacturing technique? No, no. Where where is it? (laughs) Well, it is. uh, So you often say the experience kind is still more art than science. Mass customization is more science than art. Uh, And it's not a marketing thing. I mean, yes, you can mass customize your messages. You can mass customize advertising and that. But what's really important is to mass customize the actual offering, whether it's a good, a service or an uh, experience. To, to, to get something where you, you work with each customer to figure out what it is that they want and then um, make, if it's a good, or deliver if it's a service or stage if it's an experience, exactly that offering for, uh, for the customer. And, and, and technology you know, has really brought down the cost of customization, and, and, and many industries are have based on particular technologies to be able to, uh, to in effect, mass customize. I'll just give you one example, and that is uh, eyeglasses. You know, I wear eyeglasses. And when I grew up a very long time ago, um, you would go to an optometrist, and they'd figure out your prescription, and then they would wait till the end of the week or the month and batch it together with all the other people that had that prescription and set, uh, you know, that had new glasses to be made and send it by mail to a factory uh, or to a distributor, and then they parceled it out to a factory, and then they made those glasses, and they worked your way back, and it was often six or eight weeks before you got your pair of glasses. Well, then along comes lens crafters, and they figure out how to create the technology so you can customize the glasses just for you in the store, so you get them in about an hour. And so that's mass customization. Interesting. So, so obviously we've seen that, and we've seen lens crafters get kind of gobbled up by by the Warby Parkers of the world. And, and I've heard that there are newer people that are going to even customize tenfold over what Warby's doing. 
Um, yep. Why don't, you you why can't don't, rest on your laurels. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. You're, you're only the darling until somebody cooler comes along. Um, give me an example of someone that you think, or this can be a product type, this can be a company, a brand that you think would benefit from this mass customization. Like who's missing the boat that could, uh, do oh, something really revolutionary. I think, I think that, uh, apparel manufacturers are the ones that are missing the boat and apparel manufacturers. It is, I think it's so important to, to, to bring mass customiz- customization to bear for two reasons. One is every body is unique, <laughs> right? We are all in, you know, unremittingly unique in our body shape and our measurements and everything, and yet we buy off the rack, and so we always sacrifice in terms of what we want. In my particular case, I actually have one leg that's an inch and a quarter longer than the other. I cannot get anything off the rack to fit. <laughs> I have to get things that can be tailored, you know, otherwise it looks like I'm you know, waiting for a flood on one of my feet. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's what you're about. You know, women in particular have been force fed the notion that they can buy off the rack. If it doesn't fit well, you just curl up the sleeves. It'll be okay. It's like, right. no, I want it to be exactly what I want. You know, who, who okay. impressed me the other day. And, and I will say that from, I, I'm very hard to fit too. I've got these long, mm-hmm. like monkey arms and, and I, I've got, <laughs> I, I'm a hard body type as well. There's only a few brands that fit me off the rack. Um, but I've been impressed with how much that has changed very recently. So you have like companies like Suit Supply and Proper Cloth yep. and right. um, Indochino, these places that are trying to kind of bring that to the masses or at least to people that, that care enough to pay a little bit more for it. But you know who impressed me the other day? They just opened um, Eden's, which is a phenomenal retailer in the, on the East Coast. They just opened a uh, Bonobos Experience store. And uh, just a, obviously a men's store. So I walked in there the other day, um, just had never been there, just saw the sign, whatever. I'm working on a project across the street. And I was like, hey, what's the deal? They were like, hey, we are a guide store, right? We don't, I don't care if you buy anything here or not. It's basically what they were saying. They're like, this yep. is all about coming in and getting your exact fit. Because trust me, when you go to the website, if you don't know ex- your exact fit, you're going to be lost because we have a million different fits, right? They have like eight different cuts and different lengths for every single yep. thing. Yep. And at first I was like, ah, oh, you know, I don't have time for that. I'm out of here. And, uh, but I did go to the website at some point. I did see all the sizes and I was like, wow, I was like, this is really interesting. They've, they've got it dialed in. So I went back in and there was, there was a, a wonderful girl there that helped me um, and kind of showed me what my sizes were. And then it was, it was very straightforward to get stuff online and it fit perfectly. It was, it was a very interesting kind of backdoor. Um, and I don't know how, how profitable that is to have a brick and mortar store that you're only really using to push people to your website. I assume there's a pretty big halo effect there, but I'd never well, you, seen well, it well, look at like it, that yet. Look at it this way. I mean, you go into a Macy's or a Nordstrom's or whatever, and they have all that very expensive real estate right there where you're going through the same process of figuring out what you want. But then they 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 pull it off the rack and and tailor it for you. You can get it more quickly uh, usually. But but that real estate is more expensive than a distribution facility or right. a uh, manufacturing plant directly is ideally what you want. You want them to produce it when you say what you want. That's true mass customization done on demand for you. So it's actually cheaper real estate to do it that way to separate those two functions. Well, and this place was tiny. I mean, it was maybe. Yeah. 1500 square feet and and it's not like they had 
my size and everything. But if they had my size in one thing, they were like, hey, here's your size. Go online, and we have a thousand different prints, right? You can get this shirt, right. this fit done a hundred different ways. So I am, I, I will say that it sounds like the word is out on, in the apparel world, uh, at least for men, and, and people are starting to adopt right. that for and us, for us freaks that can't buy stuff off the rack, right? <laughs> and, and, and but I think everybody's a freak. Everybody is unique. Right. You know, is that uh, nobody should buy off the rack. Which brings up the other reason for it is not just that customers are unique. It's the fact that in the apparel industry there is a tremendous amount of economic waste because they produce things that nobody wants because they produce them in sizes that don't that, that people don't fit because they produce patterns people don't want because of of all the reasons of of stuff having to go. And fire sale, and then when they when they can't sell it there, you know what they do? And this is often over 25% of the merchandise they create, they're often snipping it up and destroying it so nobody can so nobody can wear it. That's why. Because <laughs> they don't want their brand out there on you know very cheap sites or being sold for, for almost nothing. Right? It's it's just pure economic waste. They're wasting the earth's resources because they're mass producing, which means they're creating a lot of things that people don't want rather than mass customizing, which means producing it on demand to exactly what someone wants. So another thing you mentioned in, in your book, Mass Customization, you discuss how companies that have en enabled this method are outpacing their competitors. Um, and so the people that the light bulb has gone off are, are starting to, to make some headway. Who are some of these companies? Kind of what have they done well that other people aren't doing? You know, what methods are they using? You know, what, how are they customizing? Like, like, give me an example of people that are, yep. that the light bulb has gone off and, and they're, and they're starting to reap the, reap the benefit. Well, you know, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you one of the things, one of the oldest mass customizers around first, and that's Neutron Electronics that makes lighting controls. You know, first of all, the, the, the uh, founder of the company, now deceased Joel Spear, invented the dimmer. Right. So you can imagine a time where a dimmer did not exist. <laughs> and what a dimmer does is it allows you to customize the amount of light you want right now. Right. Even though it's a standard product, it's customizable. And that's one of the things. But then they started doing it where they mass customize their lights. They can have them put them together in every different ways. They can match any color that you want. They can gain them together in any way. They have like graphics equalizers, the equivalent of them for lighting. Where you can set with one touch of a button, you can set you know uh, three, four, eight different banks of lights that you have in there to get exactly the right mood that you want. So you're customizing it down to uh, to the mood or to the um, setting that, that that you want. Um, and you know then there's newer companies. One of the things I've seen a lot lately is in cosmetics. Again, with the basic understanding that every face is unique, right? It has different coloration, different shapes, and so forth. And uh, from L'Oreal to Shiseido to uh, Sephora, all these companies are creating ways where they can use digital technology basically to create an image of your face. L'Oreal's, uh, for example, is the, called the Makeup Genius, where then you can, like you went into the store and had them design your fit and everything and then purchase it later. Here you can get, use this app, take a picture of your face, and you can design the perfect look that you want to have and then purchase the cosmetics to be able to, to make it happen. And so, so, so one, so key technique there is a design tool of some sort, a way of helping customers figure out what they want. And then you get that information back to do something different for them. 
The other key technique, and Lutron exemplifies this as well as most everybody, is in fact modularity. That in order to mass customize, you need to modularize your offering. You know, think of it like Lego building bricks. What can you build with Legos? Right, everything. And everything, right? Why? Because you have a large number of modules of different sizes, different shapes, different colors, and that simple and elegant linkage system for snapping them together. So when you design your products with modularity, then you can easily mass customize them. And one of the things I realized in the in the original book, we, I had a framework in there about six different types of modularity. And only in the past year or two did I realize that, in fact, there's a seventh type. And this is the key one uh, today. And that's and, and some, very simple. It's digital modularity, right? The digi digitization is modularity. It's, it's Instead of all these different Lego bricks, you have a zero and you have a one. But they're infin infinitely customizable. Anything you can digitize, you can customize. That's why Facebook is purely mass customized. That's why media uh, today is mass customized. I don't have to choose a whole album. I can choose the individual song I want, and I can string them together with any other different song that I want. Create a mass customized playlist, for example. So when people, companies embrace that digital technology, they can uh, uh, deploy um, digital modularity to customize down to the individual with, with almost zero cost in many cases. That's, that's extremely, extremely interesting. What, are there any instances where mass customization can hurt a product or service, or have you seen somebody you know, attempt to do it and just fumble it so badly that, that uh, they probably wish they, they had never tried? <laughs> yes, yes, I've seen that. And I mean, the one big failure you can point to, in fact, is Levi's, that very early on um, – in the 1990s, you know, started to mass customize jeans and eventually gave up on it. Although it, I think it is, it's primarily because of the mindset they had. They just couldn't get around the internal mindset of mass production, of producing these things and shipping them out. And that's one of the big problems that mass customizers have is that they maintain the old mindset, uh, you know, of, of, of merchandising, of piling it high and the hopes that somebody comes along and buys it then it's going to be hard for them to 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 change everything that's required to truly mass customize. The other mistake I often see is where customer or companies, excuse me, overwhelm their customers with too many choices. And fundamentally, customers don't want choice. They just want exactly what they want. And that's why you need to find a way of helping them figure it out. And you know, one example there I remember is, I'm trying to, I can't remember which of the, cosmetic stores did this but very early on one of them you know not the body shop but something like that had this way of customizing your own uh perfume uh, uh scent right and they had the all these different um varieties of scent that had little sticks in them when you put in you could smell it then you start to to mix things together and the problem is very quickly, you lose your sense of smell <laughs> when you when you start doing you know, three or four things in a row and you forgot what one smelled like and that. And it just didn't turn out to be a very good uh, design tool. You know? So that day, eventually everybody, failed. Everybody stunk. That was that was the end of that. Uh, right. That was the end of that experience. Right. right. Well, so let, let's change gears. Uh, let's change books, actually. Let, let's move to <laughs> the experience economy. Obviously, that's that book has proven to have legs. We're still talking about it. Uh, years and years and years after after you guys wrote it, um, what give me the quick and dirty summary of 
kind of the ethos of the experience economy and just so people that haven't read the book kind of have a context for, for the next few minutes of our talk. Sure, sure. So basically, it's that goods and services are no longer enough. What people want are experiences. That um, experiences, in fact, are a distinct economic offering, as distinct from services as services are from goods. And what experiences are are memorable events that engage each individual in an inherently personal way. So you can think about going to a theme park or going to a sporting event, a play, a concert, a movie, watching TV, listening to music. All of these are uh, experiences. Um, and, you know, sort of a classic example today is going to a cafe, you know, rather than buying coffee beans as a commodity or then buying uh, the goods off the grocery store shelf after somebody grinds and roasts them or buying them at a normal service place like a vending machine, a corner diner, a bodega, a kiosk somewhere, a 7-Eleven or Dunkin' Donuts, right? Instead, you go to a Starbucks or one of the other, you know, very nice uh, cafes where you spend time where they craft the drink just for you, right? So it's mass customized right there because all the different ingredients are just modules that they use to craft your personal beverage. And then you can enjoy spending time in there. It's a, you know, it's a coffee drinking experience uh, place that they create. So I'm going to ask an extremely loaded question. Okay. How has the experience economy changed since you wrote the book in 1999, is that the, is that correct? Right, correct. 1999. So to to say that that retail has changed since 1999 to 2020 is is a is a little bit of an understatement. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, let me know kind of what you think you got right. What do you think have changed? And obviously, you you've released a a third generation of the book. So I assume that you do think some things have changed or some things needed to be revisited. Walk me through, walk me through what you got right and what, you, and what maybe you, you couldn't have seen coming. Right. Well, I, I like that last phrase, phraseology because the first one, I would have say that, you know, this may sound hubristic, but we got nothing wrong. <laughs> we got wow. nothing wrong. Well, in calls over. Interviews over. He got I know. Exactly. Right. Now, but I will, so, but I, but to preface that, I'll say, well, but I did in mass customization, right? There are things in mass customization. I say, no, that's just flat out wrong. I was wrong. There's nothing in the experience kind of that we wrote in 1999 that was wrong. There's a lot more that we know about it today. We updated in 2011 with new ideas, new frameworks, many new exemplars, and we're updated again just in the last two months where we re-released it again in hardcover with this new preview with a lot of new ideas and frameworks in it uh, as well. So we're continually extending it. Obviously, like some of the mass customers we said that failed, some of the original companies we talked about have failed. You know, not everybody is going to make it whenever you have one of these economic shifts. Only the people that, that figure out how to do it well uh, are going to succeed uh, in the end. And there are things that, that to that last phraseology used, there are things we did not know about that we did not foresee in that. And obviously, uh, the biggest one is right in 1999, the World Wide Web is only five years old. You know, people were still trying to figure out what dot com meant and that sort of thing. It was actually came out just before the whole dot com uh, implosion that happened in 1999 uh, and 2000. Well, and so um, the web has given the ultimate avenue to the experience economy. It's it's given right. everybody the the utmost customization, and 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 now it's almost made it's almost helped to uh, facilitate or even exacerbate your point because now goods yeah. 
are just commodities, like all goods. For exactly. Part, right. Like every, like my, my right, Yeti pretty that, much. that I'm drinking my drink out of. Yeah. I can get 50 and 50 different colors with my smartphone, right? The shirt that I'm wearing, I can get 50 different shirts, 50 different colors on my smartphone. So now really the experiences are the only one of the few avenues that people can differentiate and excel. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, one of the things we added to the later editions is a statement that, which we didn't say at first, so we didn't realize it fully back then is we do, you know, what we threaten people with in the experience economy is in fact commoditization, just as you said, the goods and services become commoditized. Uh, you know, where people don't care who makes them or the brands or the features, they only care about the price. And so what we add in later editions is a recognition that the internet is in fact the greatest force of commoditization ever invented. The, the frictionless marketplace means that customers can instantly compare prices from one vendor to another, and it tends to push them down to the lowest possible price, right? So it's a huge commoditizing effect. And nobody's seen that more than retailers, right? That, that retailers have seen the rise of Amazon. You know, I mean, they're already facing Walmart and how effective it is. And then Amazon came along and, and was even more effective in terms of getting people what they wanted more, you know, very quickly at uh, even lower prices. And so they've gotten squeezed there where they really have to make a decision about whether they uh, stay with their, their old strategy of basically being nice and easy and convenient, uh, in which case you're, you're, you're competing with Amazon and all the other internet companies as well as the Walmarts of the world and the Best Buys and, and so forth, all the big box retailers and that, or you have to be differentiated. And the way to be differentiated is with an experience that gives a reason for shoppers to come into your store. That's the key today. And otherwise... You think about all the bankruptcies that have happened over the last uh, five years. It's basically been uh, retailers that uh, that did not provide a reason to go in the store other than buying stuff. And hey, I can buy this stuff more easily, more cheaply, more even more conveniently online than I can by going into your store. So, would would you take us a, a moment and and revisit? Uh, the the birthday cake analogy that you used yeah. about how economies have changed. I, I think that would even set the table more broadly for for why this experience economy we get it, Amazon is has commoditized everything. But I'd yep. love to get even a little bit more granular about it and go back to how the economies have changed over time that make the experience everything. Right. Well, yeah, this is how we started that Harvard Business Review article you mentioned in 1998, uh, with basically a statement is that you can recapitulate the entire history of economic progress with the birthday cake. Because if you think about it, you know, when I was growing up, my mom would bake a birthday cake for my birthday party, and she would bake it from scratch, which meant she actually got out the commodities, you know, the flour, the sugar, the... I, I, I actually have no idea what goes into birthday cake. I've never made one, but you know, butter. all that sure stuff, butter, right? But for butter, the chocolate usually, you know, depending, but yeah, all that stuff. And, and then she mixed it up and she baked it herself. And, and how much did that cost her? Well, the, the commodities were mere dimes. That's how much it cost. But along came manufacturers like Duncan Hines and, and Betty Crocker. And what they did is they took that same stuff. They mixed it together. They put it on a grocery store shelf. They make it so much easier to bake the cake that people were willing to pay 2 or $3 for cake mix and another 2 or $3 for canned frosting. And now you would bake the cake yourself, but notice it costs an order of magnitude more money to do that <laughs> when you do it with the goods versus the uh, commodities. 
But then as, as moms everywhere, you know, went back to work and didn't always have time to bake the cake, what do you do is you call up the corner bakery or the grocery store and you ask them to perform the service of baking the cake uh, for you. And now, how much does that service cost? Well, you know, 10, 15 at the low end, maybe 20, 30 dollars. Oh, it's another it's order more. of magnitude. It's more. Than well, that, okay, so there you go. I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. It's more. <laughs> My kids are grown. I haven't bought a birthday cake in a long time. Because now the cakes uh, have so, yeah, so, like freaking transformers. They can't just be round. Right. Well, they well why? Because they have to be themed. Right. The cakes themselves have to contribute to the experience of the party, not just sit there as their own individual element. Right. That's right. part of the experience economy too even though you're buying it from a grocery store, right? So that's a service, and that costs an order of magnitude more money than the, than the, than the, the goods did, which were an order of magnitude more than the commodities. But now, of course, we're so time-starved, not only don't we always have time to bake the cake, we don't always have time to throw the party or clean up afterwards. And so we outsource it. You know, we go to Chuck E. Cheese's or we go to some other place, and we ask them to stage the birthday party experience for our kids. And now we're often paying 100 200 or more dollars for that entire birthday party experience at the core of which is a birthday cake with only two or three cents or 20 or 30 cents worth of stuff in it. <laughs> That's the progression of economic value. That's what's happening in every industry. So how can, how can people stay ahead of that? Because I feel like this, it, it's changing so quickly. I mean, we're, we're talking about an industry that, that legitimately doesn't resemble itself from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, how can, and I, and I understand you have a company that, that does this 24 seven. So how can a company not just get paralyzed uh, with having too many choices, too many directions? How can they start putting together a plan that'll keep them ahead of this curve? Right. So, so first of all, they have to decide what business they're really in. They have to decide that they're, they're, going to be in the experience business, right? And once you do that, then you can figure out, okay, what are the experience we change? How do we change our goods and our services? How do we surround them with experiences? And then when it comes time to design the experience in the, in the new preview to the uh, new edition of the book, is we talk about what you want to do is you want to design your experiences to be robust, cohesive, personal, dramatic, and perhaps even transformative. Right. So these five things and the rest of the book basically outlines how do you do these five things? How do you make your uh, experience robust, which is really the, hitting the sweet spot between different realms of experience, which briefly are our entertainment, educational, escapist and aesthetic. You know, how do you hit the sweet spot there? And then and if you're able to bring in elements of all of those, well, then you've got a robust experience. And then secondly, cohesive. Well, that's about the theme of the experience. What's your theme? You, 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 like you mentioned birthday cakes need to be the theme of the birthday party. What's the theme of your experience? You know, it, it doesn't mean that it has to be fantasy like a Disney theme park or has to be in your face like a theme restaurant. It's simply the organizing principle for how you decide what's in your experience and what's out. And if you don't come up with that organizing principle, that theme, then it's never going to be cohesive. It's never going to hang together. And then personal gets back to the mass customization, right? If you customize your goods and services, it's much easier to create that experience because experiences actually happen inside of us. That's where the experience is. Commodities, goods, services, they exist outside of us. But experiences happen inside of us. And so you to reach inside of people and create that personal experience um, um, by engaging them inside. And customization helps you do that. 
And then dramatic, we have three chapters, in fact, on the fact that work is theater, that when you stage experiences, your work is theater. And it's not a metaphor. It's not work as theater. I literally mean your work is theater, that whenever you and your workers are in front of customers, you're on stage and need to engage them in, um, uh, in that experience. And so you need to, to have, have drama to it. You need to have an experience that through the interactions that people have in your environment, yes, but mostly with your people, rises up to a climax and, and comes back down again, right? That's what drama is. And then finally, um, uh, being transformative, the last two chapters of the book talk about how there is one more economic offering after experiences where you customize it and you customize the experience to be what we often call a life transforming experience, an experience that changes us in some way. And transformations are, in fact, the fifth and final economic offering, this progression of economic value, where you're guiding people to change, to help them achieve their aspirations. You know, and, and fitness centers are about uh, transformation. Healthcare are about transformation. Coaches, you think about the rise of coaches over the last 20 years of all different stripes. They're all about transformations. Uh, and, and, you know, and so it, it's the thing about what, what do we provide today that helps customers achieve their aspirations? And you see many different um, retailers now, you know, from Under Armour to Lululemon to Peloton, and you know, think about Soul Cycle and all these things where they really are about helping people become more fit, have higher well-being, and so forth. And that's going beyond that experience to, to create really transformative uh, experiences. Yeah, that, that's that's very interesting. And you're you're giving us so much data um, that yeah, I'm, I'm going to need to go back and listen <laughs> again just so I can make sure I'm getting it all. Uh, which which I love. That, that that's not a knock. I'm, I, I love that and. You mentioned dramatic and how work is theater. I actually worked at Disney World uh, huh. for a while, and they and what was your title? What were you called? I, I, right? was, I was a cast member. That's right. You're a cast member. I was on. I was taught that uh, that you're yep. always on stage if you're in front of a customer. If you're having a bad day right. or or whatever, you you got to leave it behind the scenes or backstage. Uh, so those exactly. guys have have been have been at the forefront of this for a long, long time. What, who would you point to as another group? We'll leave Disney aside because I think anybody that understands anything about their business or has ever been to one of the parks will, will agree that they're on the forefront. Who else is, um, is, is doing a great job of this that you would point to and say, hey, these guys, these guys get it, you know, follow, follow in their footsteps well, all, all year yeah, well, to win the experience game? Right. So I'll, I'll mention two companies. One is sort of like probably the best in the world, but they only have a single location. But I and 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 I'll bet you've heard of them. And that's Pike Place Fish Market in Seattle. Of course. Right. Why have you heard of them? Because of theater. <laughs> they all you know, they they well, that the they coffee, have this that and the, the Starbucks brand. Those two reasons. Well, that's it. Well, that's it. Yeah, that's that's down, this, down the, 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 the road in the Pike Place Market. But the Pike Place Fish Market is where they, they're selling the actual fish. commodities, right? Then they throw the fish, right? That's their signature moment. When you want to uh, buy, the worker shouts out your order, all the other workers shout out, then they throw it 15, 20 feet across the counter where somebody catches it and they wrap it up for you. And there's often 20, 30, 40 people around just watching the theater happen. I mean, that's just one of the things that they do. That's their signature moment. They have all these other things as well. And the other thing I'll... I'll um, company I'll mention is one of my favorite examples. One of our actually, uh, we gave out 
Experience Stage of the Year awards. And our, our second ever Experience Stage of the Year award was to the Geek Squad, uh, which at the time employed only like 15, 20 uh, Geek Squad agents here in the Minneapolis area near where I live. And founded by Robert Stevens, who, who said he, he didn't want to um, interview prospective employees. He wants to audition them, make sure he can typecast them as geeks. And then he costumes them with the white shirts, the thin black ties the, the, that are clip-on, you know, just in case there's an altercation. The black pants and shoes with things hanging off the belt. And the white socks, Robert says, always make that uniform pop. And they drive around in their geek mobiles, and they'll, they'll pull out their badge and say, Hi, I'm from the Geek Squad. Slowly step away from that computer, sir. And they go about giving you a computer repair experience. And Robert says that his goal is to make the computer repair experience so engaging that their customers can't wait till their computers break down. And, and so it's all predicated on theater. And, and so here's, here's a basic distinction between services and, um, uh, and experiences is what versus how. Right? What versus how. What are the functional things you have to do? So as a Geek Squad agent, you have to... You know, install the computer, you have to upload the software, you have to connect the hardware, you have to, you know, install antivirus and the firewalls and VPNs and all that sort of stuff. Anybody can do that. But how they go about doing that with this Geek Squad persona is what turns a mundane interaction into an engaging encounter. So you always need to think in your, in your retail store about the what versus the how. And of course, you know, I assume everybody knows the rest of the story that uh, his company was bought by Best Buy and they went from about 20 agents over 20,000 Geek Squad agents around the country. So the attention span of potential customers is so short these days, right? Like you you get you get a couple blinks at most, especially with social media. How can companies reach new customers and engage in this theater when when people are, are already looking for the next thing before they're even even done looking at you like how, how can people stay ahead of that curve well well one one way it comes to me in mind is think about what is your opening line what's your opening line like geek squad showing the badge is a great opening line but you know do you know joanne's right joanne's stores uh that sell fabrics. fabric and so forth yeah the fabrics people right they actually work very hard on what their opening lines should be because most retailers Somebody walks in, you catch their eye, and 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 what does the retail associate say? Like, how are you? May I help like, you? What, what do you want? Yeah, what you, and, yeah, and may I help you? And then most people say, no, I'm just looking. Right, that's sort of the standard interaction. It's like getting on an elevator and facing the the door. Everybody that knows how this works. And but at Joanne, they said they well, we want to make that first interaction, that first impression, to be really good. The it's sort of the, the it's in the inciting incident in drama terms. So they came up with a great first line, which is, what are you working on? Right? What are you working on? You can't say, no, I'm just looking to the question, what are you working on? Because right. everybody that goes into Joanne is working on right. a project of some sort. And it's the same at Home Depot or Lowe's. Right? They're you not mentioned walking the in there to make a cell phone call, right? They're in there for a specific Exactly. Reason. So you ask them what they're working on. You get them engaged. Oh, they'll tell you about their project. And then you say, ah, I see what you need. I understand what you're doing. Now let me, now let me help you find what it is. So that's one way to, you know, it's a great way to, to engage them in that opening. But you also, to your point, you also have to refresh the experience. You can't just live again and rest on your laurels. You can't keep doing the same things you've done in the past. You've always got to think about how you refresh that experience so that you are keeping up with, um, you know, what consumers are, are continually changing and, and how they look for things. Well, so how can a company 
let's say that you've got more of a legacy company, right? Because the new direct-to-consumers, their DNA is completely different than a retailer that's right. been around for 25 years. How can companies right. that have been around for a little while stay authentic to their brands and their offerings while implementing new ideas, designing new mass customization, mass you know, theater experiences? Like, like yep. How can companies... It just seems like such a departure from how they used to make money, right? How, how can they do that? Well, they, they uh, it gets the, back the to again, be some well, can't, right? Some just can't. There are some, I, w- I will say no one can't, but there are some for whom it's extremely difficult. <laughs> and they would, and actually, have, you, know, you mentioned authenticity. You know, it's one of the other books that follow in the experience counting was all about authenticity, about how you be authentic in your business. We got a model. And there that talks about how difficult it can be, but I do think it's important to honor your heritage, whatever you came up with, to be authentic to it, to be ideally true to self and also be what you say you are to others. Those are the two key standards of authenticity that we outline uh, in that book. We need to extend that heritage forward. We need to see you know, what fits today based on um, uh, you know, who you were in the past, what your, what your identity is really. Right? That's the self to which you must be true. But it gets back to what I said earlier about you need to say specifically, okay, where you need to be in the experience business, that it's not just about the goods and services that we provide. And then you can figure out um, how to, to, to take what you've been doing and bring that forward into um, creating uh, engaging experiences. So, Joe, you, you founded Strategic Horizons to help businesses conceive and design new ways of adding value to their, to their economics and their, and their offerings. Would you, would you explain to people listening, like who your ideal client is and, <laughs> and then also give them a way, uh, if you don't mind that they can get in touch with you. I, I don't know if you're on social LinkedIn, your website, email, h- however yep. you would want people to interact with you. Would you just explain kind of, kind of who your perfect client is for them? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it is somebody who recognizes this shift. Um, and then, I mean, then you basically have two types. Ones that say, okay, help us understand it, what, what direction we need to go in, right? A lot of the questions you're asking about, help, we'll answer those questions to be able to help you, uh, you know, set a plan. You know, sometimes I just come in and give a speech to, to excite people about the possibilities, get them thinking about it. Other times it's a workshop to generate, you know, very specific ideas. And, uh, and, and some come up with, here's the plan of what we're going to do uh, go forward to be able to shift from ma- just merely manufacturing goods or delivering services to, to staging experiences. And then often are with companies for a, long, for, uh, you know, for a long time as they go through that process. We have two, uh, you know, in addition to our speaking, teaching, and consulting, we have two core uh, offerings. One gets back to the theater aspect is we have an offering called OnStage that is a frontline video training uh, where we take all our ideas and bring them down so that um, uh, people on the front line can understand and embrace them. That no matter what the company is doing in terms of thinking itself, that your know, managers can bring that in or retail store uh, managers uh, can come and say, OK, let's let's for what we have, let's create a better experience. Let's come up with our opening line. Let's, let's figure out how can we be more personal? How can we bring a level of drama to it? How can we surprise our customers and so forth? There's five core modules that they can go through, which you can learn about at onstagetraining.com. 
And then we also, for those uh, professionals and managers and consultants that want to really delve into and become an expert, we have an Experience Economy Expert Certification Program that we do every year. Um, this year, it's going to be August uh, 3rd through 7th uh, here in uh, the Minneapolis area near where I live. And it's a, it's a full four and a half day immersion in the experience economy where you truly you learn our ideas, our frameworks, all these exemplars. You learn exercises that we teach and work with other companies on that you can apply to your own business or to your clients. Uh, and then we often do private ones for those that want to create a real center of expertise around experience staging uh, in their business. And you can learn about certification at our own website, which is www.strategichorizons, with an S.com, strategichorizons.com, uh, where we have all our offerings. You can link to onstage from there. We talk about our books and, and, and our ideas. We have a blog there we call Thoughts Post uh, and so forth. And you can and so you can access me LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn, so feel free to find me. You just look up Joseph Fine. Uh, it'll come up more formally. My name is B. Joseph Pine the second. You may find it uh, that way as well. And uh, and then I'm on Twitter. Uh, it's very simple at Joe Pine, J-O-E-P-I-N-E on Twitter. So, uh, Joe, I don't want to let you go in, until you mentioned that you were just speaking um, at a at a West Coast event to a bunch of people in my world. If you, if you don't mind, give me a couple of the quick kind of high level takeaways uh, that, that you were able to, to give to other commercial real estate folk um, when, you, when you were speaking to them. Sure, sure. This was at the Experience Entertainment Evolution uh, 2020 conference in L.A. last week, uh, sponsored there by uh, Steve Graham of Stellar Development and then and who's put together the Grandscape uh, uh, shopping uh, experience uh, down north of uh, Dallas, Texas. And so I was talking about staging time well spent. So a couple of things I emphasized with them. I, I didn't quite say this earlier when we talked about retail, but but recognize, you know, I talked about what and how is key distinctions between um, uh, services and experiences. But the key one is about time, that services are about time well saved, right? That's that nice and easy convenient, but that's where you're competing against the Amazons and the Walmarts of the world. What experiences are about is time well spent, that you need to, uh, uh, that people need to value the time that they spend with you, that it's not about getting them your convenience is about getting in and out as quickly as possible. No, you want them to spend more time with you, recognizing that the, the more time they spend, the more money they're going to spend as a result. And so um, so creating that time well spent is, is really key. And that's that's based off of the, the, the new uh, re-release of Experience County has a new subtitle, which is competing for customer time, attention, and money. So you do compete for customers' time. Time is limited. So you have to provide that time well spent in order to get them to spend time with you. Uh, their attention is scarce. So that's where you need to create experiences that grab their attention, that capture those, their attention. And that's where we talk about the, the five uh, 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 adjectives I used before about making experiences that are robust, uh, cohesive, personal, dramatic, and even transformative. And then the money part you know, is that you need to get them to give you their money as a result of these great experiences that we've had. And so a key thing we talk about there is that you actually need to charge for the time your customers spend with you. That with experiences, charging admission or membership is a key way of, of doing it. That, that, that economically, it's what really makes it an experience. And that's one of the things, to get back to your point about what's changed, is that 
that was when we said that in 1999. It was like a lot of people laughed at that or said that's ridiculous. Retailers are never going to charge admission, and, and that now I can talk about scores of retailers that charge admission. Generally not, but sometimes for the entire place, but for places within the place or activities within the place. You know, from American Girl Place with the with the originally the theater in the store, the hair salon experience, the uh, cafe. REI climbing um, uh, the mountain in the store that they charge over $30 for. Um, there's uh, bookstores that charge admission. My favorite example is Wingtip Men's Store in San Francisco. They created a club um, where they have a membership fee to be able to join the club uh, and so on and so forth that the list can go. And we, in fact, introduce in there, and this is particularly for like shopping center developers that are moving from department stores as anchors to experiences as anchors, you know, movie theaters and virtual reality and, and uh, water park. Biggest trend in malls. Yeah. Right. Well, the, the American dream right out there in New Jersey, the first mall designed to explicitly have more experiences than retail stores. Mer- and, and the mall of America here in Minnesota wants to go to 50, 50, right. Get to that point. And that's where it's going. So all of these experiences you should be charging admission for, and the, and the other new concept I talked to the retailers last week about and is in the new preview to the book is, is what we call the money value of time, or MVT, which is basically the expenditures per minute that people will pay for your experience. You know, you go to a movie, you pay $12 for the movie, you spend two hours in there, that's actually 10 cents per minute, right? That's a good experience. Can you get 10 cents per minute from your guests? You go to a Disney theme park, though, it's 20 cents per minute. Is what people are playing. But you go to some of these new genres of experiences like escape rooms and the Museum of Ice Cream and Candytopia and all these sorts of places. Now you're paying 40 to 50 cents per minute, right? Because these are great experiences that people have. So it's sort of a measure of how well you're doing your experience. And I wish I could include the retail merchandise that people buy and the F&B, the food and beverage that they, that they imbibe. Uh, but that's not public information. So all I can do is talk about the the actual admission fees, but it, 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 time is, is the way, time and money are the ways to measure how well you stage an experience in today's experience economy. So you need to look at the money value of time that, that you create as the measure for how well you're doing. It, it, makes, it makes so much sense, and, it, and it's so cool to, to hear you break it down in such kind of systematic terms. Um, well, well, Joe, I, I've learned I've learned a ton. I, I'm looking forward to going back and, and listening to this again, just so I can make sure <laughs> to absorb everything. Uh, you, you've left us with a tremendous amount of knowledge, and I just want to take a second and, and say thank you, and um, that I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your you know decades of experience with with the rest of us. Because I mean, you you were dead on you know 10, 15, 20 years ago, and you know it, you're just getting proven more and more right as uh, as time goes on thanks adam i appreciate it. i appreciate the time